You're listening to the Ministry Grow Show, brought to you by Reliant Creative, the creative agency for gospel-centered ministries. Find out more at ReliantCreative.org. Welcome to the Ministry Grow Show, a podcast dedicated to helping churches and ministries grow and make more effective impacts for the kingdom of God in an ever-changing digital world. Whether you're building and growing a gospel-centered ministry or leading a church, if you want insight into the strategies, struggles, challenges, and successes of other ministry leaders, you've come to the right place. Welcome back to the Ministry Growth Show. Today on the show, I'm going to be talking with Doug Lucas. He's the president of Team Expansion. Doug, thanks for being on the show. It's an honor to be here, Zach. Yeah, excited to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about Team Expansion and what you guys are doing? Sure. Team Expansion is a an organization that focuses on uh, partnering with local churches all around the world to um, try to make a positive impact on folks who don't normally have a chance to hear about Jesus and who are probably in some kind of a need one way or the other in everyday life as well. So it's really just a collection of uh, men and women who are trying to make a difference uh, for good all around the world. It's an honor to work with him. And so are you guys doing like coaching, training, equipping type stuff with those church partners? Uh, yes, we do that. But our real our real focus is on the unreached uh, people groups themselves. So we're, we're primarily outwardly focused uh, out of the, the, to a part of the world that you'd think of as being uh, where the light is not yet, sh- you know, shining, I guess you could say. So uh-huh. we're doing typically uh, disciple making movement strategies. We're trying to launch, uh, you know, what you might call faith communities. We're trying to multiply those. So we are working with local disciple makers and training them to try to multiply. And then as a side uh, benefit we're working with local churches to try to make all that happen. So part of our ministry is equipping local churches to do the same in their own uh, sending areas as well. Okay. And so you guys are working with local national partners in the work that you're doing. As well. How how wide-reaching is team expansion? By God's grace, uh, God just keeps working in front of us and making it possible for us to multiply, I guess, uh, it's over 50 countries now, 90 teams, about 380 full-time workers. And uh, boy, it just seems like uh, there's more happening every time I I glance. Uh, we've been especially active in one country in Southeast Asia recently, uh, where because of God, again, working there in our midst, there are now literally uh, 34 different tribes with uh, some kind of engagement going on in one form or another. And we have now, uh, I guess, nine different uh, teams of people that are trying to launch things in three different countries in East Africa that are all very, very uh, difficult and dark. And one of those countries is, I guess, in the top five for the most difficult places to live for Christians in the whole world. So it's a real... It's a real uh, challenging work, but uh, the people that I get to work with are some of the really the greatest people in the world. So they make it fun. Mm, that's cool. Now, why do you serve with Team Expansion? Like, can you share maybe some of your initial calling 
and and how um how has that shifted over the last however many years you've been doing team expansion sure it's a fun story for me i don't know if it would be for you and your listeners but it's fun for me to remember i actually didn't know what i was going to do in life i i did go to bible college out of a kind of a deal with god i i was <laughs> lost in the infield of the indianapolis 500 qualifications during a cloud bursting rain and the family that had taken me there as guests, they um, they had lost me and I'd lost them. And here I was, this little, you know, seventh grader in the middle of all these very, very adult, you know, mostly males. And it seemed like everyone had a big thing of beer in his hands. And this cloud bursting rain made life impenetrably difficult for me to see. Uh, it was just uh, torrents of rain. Everybody was trying to get through the tunnel at once. I was vacuum packed, squeezed to the other side, squirted out there in the parking lot. And I felt like some Disney mouse in a in a cartoon looking for my family, you know, Fievel or somebody. Yeah. And uh, I remember looking up in the sky, Zach, uh, saying to God, "Look, I'll do whatever you want. Please just get me out of this mess." <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I backed up my back against the the wall of the grandstand, the big the big bleachers there. And as I looked up in the sky, I suddenly saw this figure on the top row leaning over the fence. And it was some rascal that was dropping a full beer can on my head trying to bomb me. And I thought, well, that's no answer from God. <laughs> so <laughs> as this beer can was on its way, it it actually kind of paralyzed me in fear for a moment as a seventh grader. And right as it hit this uh, car that was backing up in front of me, uh, I guess he wasn't as good of a rocket ship launcher. <laughs> it squirted beer up in the air like this geyser, and I ran for it. And right then, my friend uh, and his carload of friends and his dad, the dentist, backed up and said, Doug, get in. And I thought, how did they find me? There are 400,000 people here today. Oh, and as goodness. I got in that car, my friend Dave turned to me and said, what happened? And I looked back at him, and the whole car was quiet, and I turned to the dentist in the front seat. And I, I said, well, I'll tell you what happened. I I think I just committed my life to becoming some kind of minister. <laughs> they all <laughs> laughed. <laughs> and and uh, so I did go to Bible college, but I had no idea other than escaping beer can rockets what I would do. <laughs> but one of the classes I couldn't get out of was a required missions class. And the first nine weeks were all filled with Bible studies on the biblical basis for missions. And boy, at the end of nine weeks, Zach, I came with basically my suitcase packed, ready to go wherever. Mm -hmm. So I changed all my major and everything and and became, you know, a missions major, ended up uh, trying to figure out which org that I would try to go with. And uh, lo and behold, the kind of churches that I that I hailed from just didn't really seem very excited about any of the existing organizations as it was back in the 1970s. And so uh, I began to ask some organizations, would you help me start one that would uh, kind of satisfy these picky churches from where I'm from? I don't mean to be negative about them, but they were kind of kind of selective. Mm -hmm. And they did. These other orgs helped me start the, this org, and we called it Team Expansion. And, and that's really the way it got started. And that was 1978. And so it's been the same job ever since. When I was in the lawyer's office and they said, what do we call you? I said, well, I don't know anything about this. You can call me whatever you want. He said, okay, we'll put president. And I, it stuck. So <laughs> that, that was the initial calling, but 
it was really a Bible-based calling. I, I saw these 52 passages focused on what's going to happen to unreached people and those who haven't had a chance to hear and those who are troubled and, and despairing. And I just, from then on, I, it's always been the same. Zach. I've, I've never once uh, kind of wavered in, in my commitment. And I, in a way, I think it's weird over the 42 years um, to, to think I've worked the same job and I meet people all the time who, you know, have been basically three years here and three years there. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's just funny because every morning I get up and I realize we got to make this happen. We got to make this happen. We got to make this happen. It's just always been the same every morning for those 40, whatever, 42 years. That's really cool that you have this, you've had this passion for so long (laughs) with so much consistency. Yeah, you're right. That is super rare. Well, for whatever it's worth, I guess, I guess um, I have become convinced that if a person will keep doing the simple things, and just keep on practicing and trying them that sooner or later, I guess with God's help, you know, you're bound to get a little bit better or else you'd be pretty much a fool. I mean, you know, I have a friend, Lee Wood, who is also trained by Curtis Sargent, one of your previous guests. And Lee keeps saying that to me. He says, Doug, we just have to keep doing what we're doing because we'll get better at it. And uh, I think that's a Curtis mantra. And I really believe it's true that, that, we're bound to get better at it if God's patient enough with us to keep on letting us try. Yeah, definitely. That's that adage about something about 10,000 hours before you become an expert at something. <laughs> yeah, I'm right. not sure you've put that in and more now that you're, oh. you've been in this for 42 years. Goodness. I've never, never added it up, but it, it probably sure seems like it to those who have to work with me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are some of the challenges and struggles you've experienced looking back on these last 42 years? Well, you know, transitions are tough for any job. And I would say one of the challenges is that whenever you stay in a job for 42 years, there are going to be transitions. And, you know, one of the toughest things for me is I get close to these people. I mean, they become like family to me. And then if something does happen that changes their life circumstance, meaning that they have to transfer to somewhere else or transfer out, uh, it's not that I take it personally exactly because I don't want to make it seem like it's some kind of, you know, I go home in a fetal position and lay in a, in a bed that <laughs> night, you know, crying. But it is difficult to lose people that you love and that you've come to really value. So that's been hard. And there are a few people that have worked with us for literally decades and then they've had to change to something else. And, you know, those are tough times. But I think, um, I think. God always helps us through the transitions if we let him, doesn't he? I mean, that's just, mm-hmm. you've probably seen that in your life as well, Zach, that he, he seems to want to help us through those tough times, doesn't he? Have you, have you noticed that in your life, Zach? Hey, I bet you have. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. And th- there's, there's something to that um, I think is so beautiful that he, his glory gets to shine brightest in those times when we're our weakest. Right. And so, yeah. those moments where like, I don't know what I'm doing or I don't know what's next or (laughs) um, goodness gracious, whatever is in front of me is really difficult. And for me personally, my default is always to uh, try to muster up the strength and, and just go do it myself. And so being um, 
humble enough to allow him to guide me through those circumstances is still something that I'm very much learning how to do. So, um, For sure. but yeah, yeah. It, looking back on the times when I did just say, I can't do it. There's, there's, I don't know what I'm doing or, yeah. uh, I can't muster up, muster up enough strength to get through this. I got to just rely on you, uh, are the looking back on those times. It's like, Oh, wow. He definitely showed up one and two that went so much better. Just relinquishing control to him and allowing him to exactly guide through that. So you, you've yeah. captured it exactly. And I got to say that experiencing those times, it's almost, it almost becomes like that title of that. Was it Dickens? Uh, you know, the first, the first line in that story, it, it was the best of, what was it? The best of times and the worst of times. I mean, I can yeah. remember specific things. I once, I was helping us, I was helping the org start a work in what was then the Soviet Union. They still called it the USSR at this time. And mm. and I don't think you could call it a sabbatical because it was anything but a rest. <laughs> but it was a a longer startup uh, for team expansion. And I think uh, it was probably something like the the fourth month there as we were launching this new field. Uh, it, it was the time when the USSR was starting to break up. And Gorbachev was kidnapped on this particular day. And at that point, it did seem like bloody civil war was about to ensue. And to make matters worse, one of our nine team members was a former uh, U.S. military intelligence officer focused on the Soviet Union. So he had the guys, you know, he came across to the other eight of us as being a real expert in, in his field. And he downright, Zach, just adamantly claimed this was going to be civil war and we were going to be caught in the middle of the bloodshed. And we were way like a thousand miles from Moscow, way in the South. And this was a city of half a million people, kind of a nondescript place that you wouldn't have normally ever heard about, but it had gone really well for us. Those three months, we'd experienced some really amazing growth already. This was a very kind of uh, unique time in life for the USSR anyway, uh, because people were beginning to ask questions. Why, why has this all happened? And how could communism not be working? And all these questions were causing people to, it was like a shakeup of their foundation. So we had actually seen around, uh, I'd say, 100 people become really interested, 600 people become sort of interested in Christ. But the really fun part of it was 25 had already given their lives to Christ and dedicated to him like full tilt. And 15 of those were now leadership material. And I remember we gathered in uh, what was my our home, my family and I. We had two kids, two little kids, four and one at the time. We gathered in there in my family's house uh, that night of the kidnapping to kind of try to figure out what we would do next. And there were the 15 kind of new leaders in this little movement that had started. And they were just as wide-eyed and scared to death as we were as about what would happen. They were all predicting war as well. Mm -hmm. I remember the little, the ship's captain, he said, you know, we got to get you out by night across the Black Sea. I have access to a boat. We can get you out that way. I mean, that was how desperate this was getting. And I remember a a young auburn-haired young lady, uh, her name was Lena, and she suddenly turned to me and said, but Douglas, what will we do with this startup of this group of believers? What what will we do next? And the room yeah. got very quiet. 
And I remember looking back at her saying, well, you know, we could study a time in the New Testament when things were very hard and it didn't look very promising for them. They were in an occupied country and they were being killed off, persecuted for their faith. And she said, it sounds like our time, our country. And I said, Mm -hmm. yeah, it pretty much was in a way. She said, let's do that. Let's study that book. And so we started studying through the book of Acts that night. And as I look back on that, I was I was kind of, you know, young, trembling in my faith and in my boots. And when they all left and it was dark and that night I slept with a shortwave on a uh, headphone in, in my one ear and ear, earphone in my one ear out in the front room. And I kind of woke up with a start and looked out the window and there was a shape like a bat that was out in one of the trees. And I thought for sure I heard it whisper, get out of here be gone, get out of here. And I felt like, is a demon talking to me in the form of that bat? I mean, it was just the kind of stuff you read about in some Peretti book or something, you know, this present darkness kind of book. And yet somehow I got the, the stuff in my head to say, I said it kind of out loud in a sense, by the power of Jesus Christ, I say to you, I am not going to leave and we are going to do whatever Jesus has called us to do here. Well, that little church of 15 became a church of a thousand, Zach. And oh, it went wow. on to plant 65 other daughter churches and granddaughter churches. It started two different works among Muslims in fields next door, has sent missionaries to other countries, and is still growing today. They have their own property, their own leaders. We don't have to send missionaries there anymore. They're a missionary sending place. And I look back on that, I think that was the hardest time, but it was one of the best times in my life, too. So, there you go. Those have been some of the challenges. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's an incredible story. Goodness. Now, over the la- these last 42 years running this thing and building this thing and just being led by the Lord and some of those challenges and struggles, how have, how have you guys seen your strategies shift? You mentioned DMM, Disciple Making Movements. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, was that something that you were using early on? in the ministry or, or has that been something you've added to your repertoire of things that you teach and, and coach on and train in um, over the, over the course of the ministry? It was not. Uh, we focused like a lot of orgs did in the seventies and eighties and nineties. Even we focused on starting these beachhead churches of a hundred that were kind of in some kind of rented or purchased property and, it, it was hard going, and it was partly out of a realization that our workers were kind of floundering. That mm. when one of our staff bubbled up to me this this set of principles that sounded to me at first so insanely simple, and I just kind of tolerated it in a way as his buddy and as his coworker, and of course I was also the president, and I just said, "Yeah, yeah, go go for that." That sounds really odd. <laughs> I just, it could not be that simple, you know, and, and uh, a couple of years went by and I, I guess to his, to his credit and, and the fact that he's so, uh, you know, connected to us, he's been with us since 1984 and to his wow. credit, he would invite me to some of those early trainings that he, that he uh, uh, managed to, to launch uh, with the help of people like Curtis Sargent. He would always invite me to come to the sessions and give a greeting, you know, because I was the president. And and then he'd, sometimes he'd ask me to 
quote, teach, unquote, this one session. And I didn't know what I was doing. And he was just doing it to try to get me there so I'd learn it. You know, <laughs> He was sneaky. And uh, it was probably in 2012 to 2015 that all this was going on. And then by the time we got to 2015, 2016, one of our fields had really embraced it full tilt. And I was seeing the the fruit. And that's really what convinced me to really look into it more deeply. And so 2015, 2016, we started embracing it more and more. And then I would say after that, little by little, it's become the actual strategy that we now want to use in all of our fields. We haven't forced uh, prior strategies out. So if if there's a team somewhere that's still wanting to use a previous strategy, we don't boot them, we don't kick them out. But over time, they've many of them self-selected out anyway. I would say at least 80 to 90% of our workers now are, are doing what you would call DMM strategies all across the board. Wow. So that's a big recent shift for you guys big, then. Big. Goodness. So as you've seen that shift, being a shift that's been pretty recent for in in grand scheme of things right. for your ministry, mm-hmm. what kind of what kind of guidance do you have on for other organizations, other ministries on staying nimble and open to change in strategy <laughs> when the Lord kind of leads you, you as a leader um, for maybe, you know, other younger organizations that are, are um, what I've found oftentimes or sometimes um, want to stick to uh, what, what they started with or what they're, you know, known for or, what is what maybe even be truer what they're comfortable with i love your question zach i don't know where you get these if you've got some kind of a questions podcasters ask <laughs> but but that is a great question it was in probably the late 80s a a friend and and in a way he was kind of a mentor because he was a more senior uh leader in the faith he led a, a peer organization and he spoke to me one day about change and he said, you know, one thing I've noticed about you, Doug, is you don't seem to be glued in to any one approach. You do seem to be sort of, you, you kind of remain in a state of being willing to unfreeze. And then the other thing I noticed about you is that you're very quick to freeze in on something new. So he said the one, the one piece of advice I would give you, and he was many years my senior, but he said the one encouragement I would give you is hold it all at arm's length. He said, here I am, you know, many years, your elder. I need to learn from you to be more open to change. But he said, I would also hope you could learn something from me uh, to be, uh, you know, not so quick to throw out, say, the baby with the bathwater, you mm-hmm. know, to use that overused metaphor. And he loaned me a book. Uh, it was a book that's hard to come by now, but it it chronicled change in the middle of the Second World War in our Pacific fighting theater. And it was about a hardware store owner, Zach, who was a gunnery something or other sergeant on a, I guess, some kind of battleship in the middle of the Pacific. And this guy began to notice, he would just look down the line of turrets And he began to notice how hard it was for the gunner operators to keep their cannons or whatever you call their guns aimed at the enemy. And the reason is because uh, 
the guns were fixed sight guns on a turret, and there was very little way to tune them. So what it amounted, it was this big, giant wheel, and what it amounted to was they had to guess when to pull the trigger of the gun based on the pitch and yaw and the waves of the ship. So this guy, who was a hardware store owner, Zach, he looked down and he realized everybody on the on the row was looking at the ocean instead of at the enemy. And they would try to glance at the waves and figure out when the ship would pitch and yaw. And then they would study the movement of the turret of the gun, the barrel of the gun. And as the gun would look like it was starting to aim at the enemy, they would guess when to pull the trigger. And and then it would take a while for the for the shot to fire and make its way to the enemy. And they would hope that with that guessing, that they would happen to, to have moved, that the barrel would have moved by the wave into the right trajectory. You know, oh there's goodness. so many things to keep going. And this book that he loaned me explained that in the middle of the Pacific, this guy got the idea of attaching a kind of hand fine-tuning crank to the barrel. And he asked permission of the captain of the ship to change all the guns to his idea. And of course the captain was reluctant because you're not supposed to change things in the middle of a battle, in the middle of a war, while you're at sea nonetheless. And so what he did is he wrote the people at the Pentagon and he gave the Pentagon this, this plan and said, our gunnery sergeant believes this would up our odds. Can we have permission to modify? Well, the Pentagon allegedly, according to the story anyway, didn't write him back. They were too busy with war stuff. So finally, this captain who was chronicled in the book as being quite a maverick, he finally just said, look, we're in the middle of a horrible war and this this war is not going our way. Just do it. Do two or three of the turrets and show me what you mean. And the guy did at sea. He actually completely broke down the barrel and arranged this fine tuning crank all in, you know, in the shop at sea. And he trained the gunnery guys to use this little fine-tuning knob so that, Zach, if you can imagine now, the ship is pitching and yawing, the guys learn to use this little hand crank device that's very fine-tuned so that the gun was now constantly turning. The gun was constantly changing its its uh, aim in comparison to the ship, but it was constantly aiming at the target in comparison to the target. And these two or three guns started just blowing the enemies to death. And the other guys on the row started looking at these two or three guys that could make this impact. And they said, how do we get one of those? Little by little, they kept going to the captain until the entire ship had changed this new pattern. And the captain sent it back to the Pentagon and they still didn't answer him. So the captain being a maverick that he was, Zach, he wrote the president. And true story, it's in all the documents. He wrote the president and sent him these results. And the president actually turned to the Pentagon and said, you got to get this guy here. And the Pentagon said, what? So they literally, he's like, I'm not making this up. They actually flew the captain and the hardware store owner (laughs) to the Pentagon. And they set up a moving platform demonstration on the banks of the Potomac with target artillery to demonstrate this to the guys in charge of the Pentagon and the president came to it. 
movable sight gunnery was invented by a hardware store owner at sea. And I read this book and I thought, wow, change is actually a good thing if we embrace it. And from that day on, I thought, okay, if you're saying this is a gift, I'm going to be willing to try it, but I'm going to try to learn from my senior. I'm not going to just throw things away if they're working. And I think that's part of what's going on here, Zach. It's that almost savoring change because it can be a good thing. Um, that's <clears throat> that's such a uh, beautiful picture or metaphor, analogy, whatever have you, of that story of keeping your eyes on the it is. on the right thing, right? You've really got is. this moving target, and right. in ministry, the importance of keeping our eyes on Christ and not getting caught up in the waves and not getting caught up in the things that are distracting is is right. so significant and important. You're um, so right. So that's that's a really cool story. I, I think part that. of it is also just a a convincing mantra that I have in me that I am not that good. I'm not that smart. I mm-hmm. I don't have all the answers. I I'm not naturally a very athletic guy. Maybe I'm not. I mean, I, I'm not. But but I think that in itself causes me to believe somebody else in the circle might have a better idea. Let's hear it. And maybe that's been a part of what's made team expansion work. Uh, there's a guy named Jerry Trousdale that's written a couple of books about, you know, miraculous movements and and yeah. such. And when he interviewed me, he told me that many of the organizations that were transitioning to DMM strategies had split wide open and it had been very uncomfortable. And I remember him saying, one of the unique things about team expansion is you haven't. Why is that? And I, I didn't know what to tell him. Because to me, it's just a part of our culture that that we're trying to explore and we're trying to embrace. And uh, if Jerry Trousdale, I guess, is to be trusted, what he thought was, it's interesting that your willingness to embrace change is part of what's made it so fun for you to be able to make this transition to DMM strategies. Mm. Well, and <clears throat> I think there's something to be said about, and and this comes up in conversation on the podcast pretty often is this idea around uh, for a ministry leader, what does it look like to find that balance between being strategic in whatever it is in our marketing practices, in our uh, mission strategies, um, and also being nimble to whatever the Lord is guiding and directing and leading. So there's, there is a, there's something significant that I see in talking with ministries when a ministry leader is willing to stay nimble and humble for the Lord to just completely transition or shift the direction of the organization versus ministry leaders who are maybe stiff-armed and want to be uh, more heavily strategic in their own yeah. – like, I, I made this strategy, so I want to stick to it. Yeah, I hear you. And um, I, there is a like there is an incredible importance to being strategic and to ha- putting thought and effort into those things and having plans and and having strategies around everything that we do. Absolutely, I'm not saying that we say no to those things, mm-hmm. um, but with absolutely completely open hand, open arms to say, "Hey, Lord, this is the strategy that I've come up with. This is the direction I think." you're leading, but I want to stay humble and nimble to where you will guide and lead and direct. Right. 
Yeah, I agree with you 100%, Zach. You're right. Now, Doug, you shared one really cool the your Russia story was was awesome. Can you share some some uh, um some of the things that you've seen recently now that you guys are pushing and training with the DMM strategy, some stories, uh exciting things that God's doing through this new direction that you've taken around this new strategy? Sure. Um, as many as you want. Uh, I don't know, you know, whether your sponsors, uh, <laughs> how long you have, but yeah, <laughs> one of the things we're learning is the, the amazing trust in local, uh, you know, leaders that become our, our cohorts. And I know this is just a story that you're bound to hear over and over again, people who are, uh, living it and willing to die for it. Um, uh, you know, young men and young women who will ride a motorcycle way up in the mountains and upon arriving at a village, uh, begin prayer walking. And while they're walking, they'll find, a, a you know, a family that's got a, a sick uh, husband and they'll be invited in to pray for the husband. And, and before long, the local police come and arrest them and haul them in, confiscate their motorcycle and and hold them all night long, uh, tease them about rape, tease them about uh, never letting them go in a in a room with no windows and hold them prisoner. And then suddenly, like the next morning, letting them go uh, and saying, we're going to keep your motorcycle because we're convinced that you were spreading this story of Jesus and we're going to confiscate your motorcycle, but you're welcome to go. Just don't ever do it again. Uh, and then they go back and debrief and pray and and really can't wait to share the message of Jesus again. It sounds like some book of Acts come alive, but mm-hmm. that's that's really in a way what it is. I, I I think about the the men and women in places like, you know, we started in Venezuela in 1986 when it was kind of resembling a modern, you know, metropolis of they called it the city of eternal spring, Caracas. I mean, it was beautiful and escalators and big shopping malls and people playing chess out in the middle of the plazas and and we got off to a great start and over the years you know the government in Venezuela is very troubled I, I think and mm-hmm. now uh, so many of the believers there have have uh, lost their jobs and even if they had a job their the money is so devalued and even if they did have valuable money there's no food to buy it's all gone and so the average Venezuelan now I saw in a study recently has lost like 16 pounds over the last year. And, and in the middle wow. of all this, these churches just keep growing and multiplying. And those men and women who day in, day out, and then our own uh, North American scent workers as well, people that are living in places, you know, we had, we had people in one of the cities that I won't name on uh, line where uh, this pandemic originated and, and seeing them, you know, have to go through government-sponsored uh, uh, repatriation flights, evacuation flights, uh, uh, getting on the phone with these folks while they're trying to drive across the country and make it in time for an evacuation flight and knowing it's the last flight out and they're going to be stuck in a place where the airport's going to be shut down for it's indefinitely. And yet they live these lives because of their commitment to Christ. They leave their their friends, their grandparents, you know, who sometimes say, well, you can go just leave the grandkids with us. I mean, they leave the house, they sell the house sack where they've made memories, where their kids have made tree houses. 
they sell all that stuff and they do that for this calling and they sell or give the family dog to somebody they trust and they traipse off to some what the world would call godforsaken place and they do this because they're convinced that life and all the things we hold dear are they just pale in comparison to living and loving and learning and knowing Jesus and being able to obey him and wearing a white robe on that day when he comes back and judges a belief that that day is more important than any possession and any career and any any idea that we would have held dear that the thing that 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 passes up all of that stuff this calling for Jesus it that that's just to me some of the most exciting stuff that we see in team expansion but along the way God has been good I, I have here in front of me a web page that is literally a real-time readout of the groups that people have started and and the people that they're inviting to those groups and the the prayers that they're praying it's it's actually accurate to the to the moment so when somebody inputs data in some land in North Africa it, it literally keeps up by the minute in in this uh, set of metrics that we keep and yeah seeing the 2418 baptisms so far in the middle of the pandemic year and seeing 800 new groups started in the middle of a pandemic and knowing now there are 4,032 groups that are active around the world with 25,916 members is exciting. But what stands behind that, Zach, what I get to see here is, you see, I kind of know the inside data. And the inside data is our workers have shared their testimony or God's story 92,121 times so far this year. And even as I'm saying that, I get this little moist, uh, you know, glitz in the eye because I realize, yeah, that that lagging indicator of those baptisms, it's there because the Holy Spirit worked in those people's lives. But the Holy Spirit worked in those people's lives because 92,121 times somebody told the Jesus story to someone else. And that's really the story that's that's great. All these people that are given it all, they're given their all, both both our our local, national, you know, international partners, as well as these folks sent out from North America. They're they're just amazing people with whom to work, Zach. Mm, that's so cool. Now, how are you guys taking those incredible stories of transformation that especially through you and a lot of the partners that we've been talking to in this space? Um, there's just tens of thousands of stories coming out of the work that is being done and the work that God is doing through all of you and all these other organizations that you guys are partnered with. How are you taking those stories of transformation from the field and communicating and sharing it with your audience? And uh, I don't know how you guys are structured, but if you have a donor base, like what does that mm -hmm. kind of look like? It is hard because uh, we do have to do everything by – by direct support raising, uh, very, very few people in team expansion are on a straight salary. You know, it would be listed in the, literally in the handfuls. Uh, almost everybody is direct faith-based support raising. However, many of our workers are in Muslim lands or, or other lands that are regulated and restricted. So it's true. We have to rename everybody. 
uh, we have to mosaic out all those faces uh, because of facial recognition software. We have to sweat bullets to try to figure out how do we make sure that this is still going to be engaging for a donor to to read and be excited about, and at the same time, safe for the the people who are in the field. So literally every single name has to be changed and and every picture either substituted out with some similar looking picture from Unsplash, uh, you know, or else, you know, we have to completely hold that story and not tell it because it's too sensitive. Uh, last month, one of the families we've been working with in one of our fields in, in East Africa, uh, that family of local, you know, brand new believers were arrested because they had started sharing their faith with others and they had children. It was just really ugly to think that they sent their kids to jail along with them, but they did. And they were tried and it looked really bad. Uh, Our workers were trying to take them food because they didn't serve them anything in the jail. Mm. Uh, This was a place where people, you know, write books about persecution. And uh, we were sweating bullets for this family. And the whole time, the sad part about it was we really couldn't say much about it. Uh, there were some press releases that broke into national syndicated news about it, but not from us. You know, we weren't taking part in that. Uh, but we were asking people in general to pray about a family in a place that was in jail for their faith. Well, as it turned out, the local uh, law enforcement sent them up to the Capitol. And of all things, the Capitol decided to exile them rather than put them in jail. I don't know, maybe they don't have you know, enough money to keep people in jail now. So they just basically exiled them. They basically said, we don't care where you go, but you're not welcome in our country anymore, even though you're one of our citizens. If you believe this malarkey, we're just going to throw you out of our country and you have to go somewhere else. So they're now in a, in a neighboring land, safe and secure. Uh, we gave them names that aren't like their real names necessarily, Mona and Wally and their kids. But in a way, it's a happy story, I guess you could say, on one side, because they weren't killed or, you know, beaten up. Uh, they weren't uh, put in some dark jail where they'll rot. So it's a happy story. But on a, in another way, it's hard because we couldn't tell prayer partners and friends and supporters much about it. We had to rename them and be very general. We've not once said the name of the country. Uh, it is very hard, I got to say. But we're we're trying our best. We do emails. We do, you know, some limited web stuff. We, we, uh, donors, especially that are involved, uh, especially at a high level, we send them kind of specialized mailings that don't get published on the web and aren't, Mm -hmm. aren't uh, distributed widely. And we ask them, will you just please keep these very discreet? And then the donors and the foundations that give, you know, major gifts, uh, they get like more personal letters directly from me and I'm basically swearing them to secrecy and we're being more open to them. So those are kind of some of the levels, I guess, uh, that, that we work on. Gotcha. Well, that's, that's super helpful. Yeah. There's, uh, an importance in communicating stories and, and yeah. sharing what God's doing, but if it's, if working to harm your national partners or missionaries on the ground those that have said yes to Jesus in a place that's hostile to the gospel that, you know, there, that's good that you guys are taking that seriously and, and never want to 
put those in risk that um, are living in situations that are much different than what we experience here in the yeah. States. It is crazy, isn't it? We have a, a guy who's a former cop who is our, you know, actual security director for, for our fields. And we have a communications team that takes this extremely seriously. And I do, I take it extremely seriously. So you're right. It is, it is very important. Yeah. There's a, there's a responsibility that is laid on, especially ministries like yours that are doing work in hostile places to, to communicate what God is doing, but also be careful to protect those that are, that you're serving and working with. So that's really cool. Um, Doug, this has been awesome. I appreciate you being on the show so much. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. If people want to get a hold of you or learn more about team expansion, how can they do so? Sure. Uh, that's nice of you, Zach. Uh, they can go to the website. It's just team expansion spelled out with no punctuation, teamexpansion.org. They can go there. Uh, while I was on this journey trying to understand DMM, I kind of began uh, with a friend uh, documenting the stuff I was learning. And we turned that into a companion, you know, like a microsite, you could call it moredisciples.com. And that actually became then a book uh, that's on Amazon that's just called More Disciples. Uh, and so that's available to learn more as well. And they can use the contact form on the on the website uh, very easily. I, I get I get those messages forwarded to me all the time where somebody will use that contact form and I, I'm happy to, to answer. So That's awesome. Well, Doug, can I pray for you and team expansion? Sure. That'd be very kind of you, Zach. Father, I just lift up Doug and his team. I pray that you would continue to guide and lead uh, this amazing ministry and, and this amazing man. Thank you for his um, willingness to be obedient to your call, Father. Thank you for the work that you've done in and through him that um, you've done in and through his team at Team Expansion. And I pray for their national partners, their missionaries on the ground, that you would protect them, keep them safe, and uh, give them um, courage to continue being bold for you, Father. Uh, thank you so much for uh, just what you're doing through this ministry. You've you've invited us all into this um the redemption of humanity and we get to be a part of that. It's a, it's a exciting opportunity and an invitation to be part of what you're doing. And, um, and so we thank you for Doug and his team's willingness and obedience to jump into that. Um, yeah, we love you so much, father in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Doug. Doug, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. It's an honor. Thank you for inviting me and I wish you Godspeed and all the other uh, folks that you're, interviewing and in all of your endeavors as well, brother. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Okay. See you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ministry Grow Show. If you enjoyed it, we'd appreciate it if you rate and or review us on the iTunes store and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you have a story to share with other ministry directors and pastors or know someone who would be an incredible guest on the Ministry Grow Show, let us know. We love connecting with ministry executives and sharing their wisdom and insight with our audience. Just send us an email at info at reliantcreative.org. And lastly, if you need help telling your ministry story, we would love to share how we can help in that process. Check out Reliant Creative at reliantcreative.org. See you next time.